Welcome everybody um, tonight, and especially anybody who's visiting us. Sandy. <laughs> it's a lovely one. welcome everybody tonight. There's a lovely, nice, peaceful feeling in, in the room tonight. And I spoke here, I think, two weeks ago. It was a wee sort of small mini-series, uh, a wee sort of teaching series. And I spoke on the Great Commission. The mission of the church, I think I called it a mission impossible. Is it a mission impossible to carry out the mission of the church? And just as a wee quick recap, what I'd got to was is that the mission of the church, it comes from the Great Commission in Matthew's Gospel 28, 16, and 20, 16 to 20. When Jesus told the apostles to go and make disciples, that's the mission of the church. Whatever your church has, whatever it is, that's the mission, is to go and make disciples. There are lots of other things we do, but go and making disciples is our primary function. That's the task we've been given by Jesus. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptising them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you, even until the end of the age. Now, out of that, three things were really clear. The Great Commission, the mission of the church to go and make disciples, is not an option. It's a command. It's a command from Jesus. It's not a, well, I, I don't really do that. I'll leave that to other people to do. Or I, don't, I can't really speak to people. I'll, other people are better at that. It's not an option. Because the truth is, it's not about us. It's about God's power. It's about the power of the Holy Spirit. We just need to open that. So it's a command to make disciples. The other thing is that command comes with the highest of authority. It comes from God. To make disciples in the name of Jesus. It comes from God. So it doesn't get any higher. That command to go is, a, is the most powerful command you'll ever get in your life. And also, we need to remember that, we all need to remember, particularly folks like myself who are asked up to speak, this is not my work. Making disciples is not my work. It's God's work. We get the privilege of partner in a minute. Do you know, we, sometimes we hear folks saying, you know, my mission, my mission, and my mission. I don't have a mission. God has a mission. I'll just get to tag along and help him with it on that front. So it's keeping that in mind. To make disciples is a command for God. It comes with God's authority. And it's God's work that we get along with. So that's where we got to the last bit. Now, tonight's scripture is from Luke. It's Luke 24, 45-49. Luke 24, 45-49. And in Luke 24, 45-49 it says, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, This is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. 
You are witnesses of these things. So this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. There. He opens their minds to scripture. This is something when I was putting this together, this is something that came to me. Have you ever noticed that you can sort of tell where a person what's most important to them in life? Because that's the thing they usually talk about the most. That's the thing they talk about the most. You ever notice that? There used to be an old saying was if you open somebody's checkbook and see what their payments are, you can tell what's important to them in life, the people that they get the things that they give money to. It's the same with talking. People talk about, I work with a fella, right? And he works, he works just in the desk next to me. He talks about his car. He talks about his house. And he talks about his pension. That's what he talks about all the time. And it's always in terms of money. How much his car costs. How much his house is worth. And how much he's stashing away in his pension. Right? Very rarely is he talk about his wife or his kids or anything else like that. Right? <laughs> Who's pension in that order? Aye. And that tells you what's, what some of these priorities are. Um, I know a woman. Aye. An older woman. And we laugh because anytime we meet her and we chat to her, she's got five kids. Right, but they're adult kids. Aye. She'll never talk to about one. <laughs> so you talk to her about something and you say, Do you see that thing on the telly about such and such was happening? She'll say, Ah, your Jerry was saying Aye. that was terrible. And you go, all right. And then you'll say something else there. And she'll say, aye, Jerry was saying that as well. <laughs> all she ever talks about is her one kid, Jerry. And she's got five. And, and it's an indication of what's, what's in a person's heart and what's in their mind when it's flowing out of their mouth. Scripture isn't any different. Isn't any different. Do you know that there, Jesus in the Gospels uses over 95 direct Old Testament scriptural references. Let's round up to 100, right? 95. That's direct references, that's not indirect references, so he uses 95 direct back to the Old Testament in his mission, in his ministry. That tells you it's important to him. The Old Testament scripture was important to Jesus. That was that was the scripture he was brought up with. And if you're familiar with Christian teaching, you just need to go to the, when he started his ministry. When he went to the synagogue and they handed him a scroll, the book that he read from was Isaiah. All through his, when he was tempted in the wilderness with Satan, I'll turn these turn those stones into bread. Man lives not by bread alone. He constantly used Old Testament scripture right up to the cross. So that tells you something about what was important to Jesus. Old Testament scripture was important in his life. And it didn't just stop with Jesus. Because when he passed the mission to the apostles, they continued in that vein. They continued in that using scripture to guide people now you've got to remember in that, at that point in time the New Testament has happened but it hasn't been written it hasn't been written so any scripture they're using is Old Testament 
when they're talking about Jesus they're using the Old Testament to talk about the New Testament writers there's approximately 250 direct quotations with the New Testament writers over a thousand if you use indirect quotes over a thousand references back to the Old Testament for the New Testament and you only need to look at things like you go to the book of Acts Philip is guided by the Holy Spirit as an Ethiopian eunuch sitting in a chariot he's reading the scriptures he's been to Jerusalem he's worshipped he doesn't know what he's reading Philip goes up and what's the book that he starts explaining who Jesus is Isaiah he says to the Ethiopian let's start here then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture that's Isaiah he told him the good news about Jesus he didn't have a new testament to tell him about Jesus he used an old testament the apostle Stephen in Acts 7 just before Stephen stoned he's before the Sanhedrin and they ask him and he starts going through the Old Testament he goes from when he speaks it's, it's a beautiful speech it's probably the greatest sermon that I've read it's just the way he does it and the man's facing death Stephen's facing death and he starts with the book of Genesis goes to Exodus Deuteronomy Amos Isaiah and ends at Jesus and sadly they kill him they kill him at that point you can see for this that scripture is central to the ministry of Jesus and it's central to the ministry of the apostles it's it's crucial to them and that's why it needs to be central to our ministries now please don't panic here what I'm not saying is we all need to be biblical professors we don't but scripture needs to be central to any ministry that we're working on it needs to be there now when I mentioned earlier that we've got a mission to make disciples and it's a command for God the big question is, is how, how, how do you do that how do you make a disciple and I think the last time I'd said what you do is you lay out your manifesto and you convince them or you show them it and you say this is what it is and that's what we do with scripture if we've if we got to make a disciple we need to lay out scripture in front of them so that they can see it the thing is, is what is it we're laying out in front of them so they can see or more importantly who is it we're laying out in front of them when we, when we put scripture in front of them who are we laying out there and the clue is in the piece of scripture we just read there, Luke 24, 45 to 49. What it says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. He told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. Jesus uses the Old Testament reference to the Saviour. He doesn't say, I will suffer death and rise on the third day. He doesn't do that. He refers to himself in the Messiah. 
And that's not an accident. That's no. He didn't need to sort of miss a trick there. What he could say there is, it is written in the Old Testament. He's used the Old Testament phrase for who he is, the Messiah. And what he's saying is, what is written there is written about me. It's written about me. And if you want to know who I am, go there. Go there and you will see me. Now remember, we're speaking at a time in the New Testament, isn't it right? And for, for New Testament Christians, I've, I've got to be honest, a lot of us would probably go, that's a hard one, that. How do you spot Jesus in the Old Testament? Because he's not even mentioned once. He wasn't a book when the Old Testament was written. How can you see him? So if you're ever struggling with the New Testament, know this, you are spoiled. You've got everything you need to know. It's put on your hand. Think of the Old Testament Jews who were not, who were always looking towards Jesus, towards the Messiah. Were yet to see him, but they had to keep faith. You have the faith of the New Testament because you've got all laid out. It's happened. And that's what he's saying. They wrote about me in the Old Testament. What they wrote about me in the Old Testament, you have now witnessed. You are my witnesses. That's why he uses the phrase, the Messiah will suffer. There. So, how do we find Jesus in the Old Testament? How do we find him? Easy place to go. The beginning. Go to the beginning of the book. John's Gospel says it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Even John's Gospel saying, if you want to find them, go to in the beginning. Go there. So you go right to the start of the Bible. Genesis 1.1. What does that say? In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. John's Gospel was saying to you, Jesus was there at the beginning of creation. The Son of God. He wasn't incarnate, he hadn't taken on a human body, but he was there. He was present. That's who was there. So our starting point, if we're ever discipling somebody and we're laying out scripture is, effectively, this is how old Jesus is. He's the same age as God. Because he is God. That's a hard one, isn't it? To say to somebody who's never met Jesus, he's never never involved in scripture. By the way, the man you've heard about is Jesus. Is God. He's as old as God. It's an awkward one. Because right off the bat, you're open to ridicule. People just, they would go, that's no credulous, that's no believable. But you'd be as well starting that as you mean to go on. Because nothing you're going to tell them about Jesus is going to be believable. Nothing. And you need to remember, we need to remember this thing. Anything we're telling people about Jesus, it's not our job to convince people. We're not there to convince them. We're just there to tell them. 
We know who convinces them. The Holy Spirit. So it doesn't matter how outlandish the statement you're making is. Don't worry about it. If it's in the scripture, it's got power. And the Holy Spirit will take what you are saying. John boldly says it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Bold as anything. So, we remember that. That we're not there to convince people. And that where we start with Jesus is at the beginning of the Bible. He's there. Great one I always remember when I came to faith at first. And I was reading Genesis. And it said, and it's God speaking and God says, And we will make him in our own image. And we, I was gone. who's we? Who's God talking to? And I remember going to the minister at the time. You know, something like me, he's retired now, Martin Allen. I went to Martin Allen and I said to him, Listen here, I, says, I know I'm pretty new to this game. I think I might have this, but I'm not too sure. See, when God says we will make him in our own image. Now, I know the Holy Spirit's hovering over the waters, the Spirit of God. But when he says we, is he talking about Jesus? Is he talking about the Son of God? You know what? Aye. That's where Jesus starts. We. And God says, we will make. So he's talking to and when he created in heaven and earth. But not only did he create heaven and earth. When you're taking people forward in discipleship. And you're explaining to them who Jesus is. He didn't just create heaven and earth. He created Adam and Eve. Man and woman. And they put them in the garden. They set them up with everything they needed. Everything. Everything was perfect. They had a relationship with God. Their surroundings. Each other. It was all working. That wasn't enough for them. That wasn't enough for them. And they broke the only limitation that God had put on them. Don't eat anything off that tree. Don't touch it. Don't touch that tree. What did they do? They disobeyed them. They disobeyed the one who had given them everything they would ever need. They disobeyed them. And that broke his heart. Broke his heart. You know, when they break, when they, they disobey God and they go and hide and they cover themselves. And they say, we're not coming out because we're naked. And you can hear the heart his voice. Who, who told you you were naked? Who told you that? Because he knows. His heart was broken. Because at that point, when man disobeyed God, every relationship was broken. Our relationship with God was broken. Our relationship with men and women was broken. That was broken now. Our relationship with the soil was broken. Cursed is the ground because of you. The ground that gave us food and gave us comfort and everything. That was now. Our relationship with her was destroyed. Our relationship even with the serpent was broken. There will be enmity between man and the servant, the offspring of man or woman and the serpent. Every relationship destroyed by that one act of disobedience. That's us. 
That's what you need to tell somebody when you're discipling them. We can't pull away from you. There's, there, there are churches in the world who just stay away from telling disciple people that they're sinners, that we're all sinners, that we've broken God's heart. They don't want to do that because it's not palatable, it's not comfortable, it's awkward. They need to get real. The whole gospel message is awkward and uncomfortable. There's not a bit of it you can swallow easily. What they do is they do what your mammy used to do when you were real. I don't know if they do it nowadays. When you had a sore throat, she'd roll some butter and sugar. Right? So you could eat the butter and squeeze your throat. They try to roll the gospel in sugar. They don't tell newly discipled people that we're all sinners. We've broken God's heart. And it was us that done it. God's clear about it. Because God, Adam, God says to Adam in the garden when he disobeys him, because you listen to your wife, because you... And because of you, the ground is cursed. It's your fault. And that's what disciple people need to know. It's our fault that life is the way it is. This clearly establishes in people's minds what the problem is. Because as you well know, everybody thinks God's everybody else out there thinks God's the problem. It's his fault that people are dying and people are starving and people are not the rest of it. No, it's not. It's clear there. But God just doesn't blame us and leave us at that. He promises us a saviour. He promises us a saviour clearly. Genesis 3.15 And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This is him talking to the serpent. This is God talking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers. God curses the serpent. He curses the serpent. He'll crawl on its belly forever. But when he mentions the offspring of the woman, that's the first time the Son of God, the Saviour's mentioned. That's the first time the Messiah's mentioned in the, in the Bible, in the book of Genesis. A nice big word for it. Right? There's actually. Three words all say mean the same thing. It's called the Proto-Evangelion, right? Or Evangelion, whatever you want to call it. It just means the first time that the Messiah is mentioned in the Bible. It's in Genesis 3.15. Dan, Derek Kidner, the writer, says, it's the first glimmer of the Gospel. First glimmer of the Gospel. And the thing is, the first mention of the Saviour it mentions of him as a warrior, as a head crusher. He will be a warrior messiah. He will crush the head of the serpent. And from that point on, throughout the Old Testament, you see pointers to the Messiah. All the way through. There's literally them. I'm only just packing out some basic ones that can be used. If you go to Abraham, now Abraham's about 2,000 years before Christ. 
Just over 2,000 years before Christ. And when God engages Abraham in the first fledgling embers of the new Israelite nation, he says to him, Abraham, God says to him, your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. God says to Abraham, through your offspring. See the word that's actually used? It doesn't mean offspring as in which I used to think was all the wains that he was going to have. It doesn't mean that. I thought it was all the wains that was going to come out of Abraham all the way down. That's not what the meaning of the word is. The, the word used for offspring there is a singular reference. It's referring to one person to be born, not a nation. Through your offspring, the nations will be blessed. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about the person, the one to be born. Through you, Abraham. There again, the Messiah is mentioned at a really important point in God's plan for salvation. Through you, the offspring. And what he's saying is, Abraham, the nations of the world will be blessed, not because they're related to you, but because they're related to the one to be born. That's how they'll be blessed. This is over 2,000 years before Jesus appears. And this time, the way God spoke to Abraham, the Messiah is not mentioned of as a warrior. He's mentioned of as a saviour, as a blesser, a bringer of blessings. God's starting to build up the picture of the one who is to come. Jump forward again, roughly about another 500 years. You're at the Exodus. George Mitchell was talking about it this morning. What's latent in the Old Testament is patently obvious in the New Testament. We're in the Old Testament. Now, the Israelites have been in slavery about 400 years. They're in slavery, they're in the land of darkness in Egypt. Now, the Exodus story is regarded as what they call a correlation between the spiritual journey through darkness to light. The Israelites coming from the darkness of Egypt to the promised land is like you and I coming from the darkness to the world to the bosom of Jesus. A spiritual journey. It's always used as that. And here's what God does. His people are in darkness and slavery. He sends a saviour to set them free. Moses, he sends him a saviour to set them free. He's building the picture all the way through. But before Moses can set the Israelites free from the grasp of the Egyptians, there's got to be a sacrifice. A lamb needs to be sacrificed. And the blood of that lamb used to mark out the Israelites. Can you see a pattern forming here? I will send you a saviour with a sacrifice of blood before your people are set free. 
God is laying clue upon clue upon clue throughout the Old Testament pointing towards the Messiah. And this third reference to the Messiah is not as a warrior. It's not as a saviour. It's as a sacrifice. The, the Messiah will be a sacrificial lamb. So yet the picture's filling out. It's filling out. And if you jump forward again to about a thousand years before and you go to the book of Samuel King David is on the throne. 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 7.13 And this is what it says about him. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Through David, God is pointing to the Messiah as not a warrior, not a saviour, not a lamb, but as a king. He's establishing Jesus' kingship through David. That's what he's doing. And there's an amazing reference by the psalmist in Psalm 2 where David speaks. And he says, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance to the ends of the earth your possession. God said to David, I will give you everything. What, is it, what does Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. It was promised in the Psalms. God promised to give the Messiah King everything. And Jesus stands up with a great commission and says, All authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. God has established through the Old Testament the pattern of the Messiah. What he looks like. What he'll do. He will lead as a king. He will save. He will bless. He will also suffer. And he will crush sin. He will crush evil. That's all in the Old Testament. Everything that points to Jesus. And it gets even more amazing. You get to the first book of the New Testament. Bear in mind, we're trying to lay out who Jesus is to people. You get to the New Testament. First book of the New Testament... Matthew. Matthew 1 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. So the New Testament brings you all the way through right up 
to the New Testament. The Old Testament brings you all the way right up. And the first thing the New Testament does, look back down the line <laughs> in the Old Testament to see Jesus. And it gives you a big genealogy of who Jesus is born from. The Old Testament points to the New Testament and the New Testament points to the Old Testament. It's one book about one person. It all points to Jesus. But the lovely thing is, the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, leads you out of the Old Testament right up to the cross. Right up to the cross. The cross of Jesus. And what happens at the cross of Jesus? This is what happens. See Satan's lying victory in the garden. See the victory, the laugh that he had. When he drew man and woman away from God. His, his short-lived victory there. Is destroyed at the cross. It's destroyed at the cross. <coughs> And see the curse that was put on man. When God said, because of you. Because of you, the ground is cursed. Because of you, our relationship's damaged. At the cross, that's wiped away. God is no longer saying, because of you. He's saying, because I love you. Because I love you. When Jesus dies, all those broken relationships are healed. They're all healed. Our relationship with God, and if we're in Christ, our relationship with each other. And with the world. An incredible, incredible sacrifice. Now, that's quite a simplified version of looking for Jesus in the Old Testament. He's everywhere in it. You can go to the New Testament and do it everybody's clearly. But at some point you're going to have to reference back to the Old Testament for them. You're going to have to reference back. The things that we need to consider can go stop here at the cross. We must be able to, when we're discipling people, we must be able to show them Jesus in the scriptures. We must. There's no option for it. Jesus showed people who the Messiah was in the scriptures. Do you remember when he's walking along, he's resurrected and he's on the road to Emmaus, and the two men, and they're talking away, and the two men are saying... Oh, Jesus is dead and he's died and oh, we're all scattered everywhere. And he says, is that right? What is he there? He opens their mind to scripture and they realise who he is. We must do that when we're discipling people. Look, we, can, we can make all the cups of tea for people we want. We can bake them all the cakes we want. We can drive them places and we can be nice and and do lots of good things from painter fences and all the rest of it and they'll say those Christian people are really helpful Christians are good people good people, Christians, good moral people very helpful they've not seen one ounce of Christ they've seen 
the actions of a person who is in Christ. But they need to see Christ for themselves. And the only place you can see him is there. It's the only place they can see him. And the only one that can give them that sight is the Holy Spirit. So you take them to the gospel and you say, this is who he is. This is who Jesus is. The Holy Spirit does the rest. That puts us in a position. That puts us in a big position. Because then it says to us, How well do you know your scriptures? How well do you know your Bible? How, do you, how well do you know Jesus in the Bible? As opposed to Jesus in your head. Or Jesus as you would like him to be. Or Jesus as some singer told you he was. How well do you know Jesus in the scripture? Because at some point you're going to be in front of somebody and you're going to have to show them. Because Jesus makes it clear, go and make disciples of all nations. How am I going to do that? Telling them who I am and what I've commanded you. And you are my witnesses. How are you going to tell them that? The only place that that is stored is there. And the only job we've got is to speak their words. Now like I said, you don't need to be a Bible expert. And if we read our Bibles regularly, God reveals what we need to know throughout our day. But it's crucial as Christ, Christians that we read our Bibles. Some must. Some must. Because to fulfill the command to make disciples, we need to have what's in there. Both in here, but more importantly, in there. So that when we're given the call to step forward, and show Jesus we have the tools we have the tools and we can't wing it we can't wing it what we're not allowed to do is use scripture in a bingo caller fashion I've heard that that has been done to me where people just throw references to the Bible at you <laughs> or they just see that that's what you want to be doing that doesn't work because the, the problem for us as a church and I don't mean just this church is here's the reality and I know we comfort ourselves through it in other worlds the number of disciples in this country is falling the number of disciples in the churches is falling don't you worry about it God's in charge but we still have the duty to go out there and make disciples regardless of what the numbers are Regardless of what the numbers are. That was thrown into focus last Sunday. I was speaking at Dykehead Mission. Right? And as I've pulled up to the mission, as we all know, there's a big football game on last Sunday morning. I've pulled up. And there's a big hall, big social club right across the road. Right? The car park's absolutely rammed with cars and people logging into the social club to see the football. And I went into the, the mission hall. There's fewer than what's here. But my goodness, the power that was in that room was incredible. The, the people and the prayer and the communion that they said. So it doesn't matter. The numbers don't matter, but we need to be prepared to follow the command of Jesus to go and make disciples. 
And that means we need to know this. We don't need to know it back to front. But we just need to know the Jesus that's in there. So that we can pass him on to people. And the Holy Spirit can bring him alive in their hearts. This is God's word. May he bless it to our hearts tonight. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of Scripture. Often something that we we can take for granted. It is your word, it is your spoken word put down in print. And no matter how the words are arranged, there is no power in them without you. There is no power in them without the Holy Spirit. There are many people who have read the Bible and have not been moved one bit because the Holy Spirit was not with them. Heavenly Father, I pray that we open our hearts and our minds to Scripture as the way to show Jesus to new disciples and that we have the courage to step forward as commanded by Jesus to go and make disciples of all nations this is your command God to spread the gospel the good news that the sinfulness of man has been washed away by the death of Jesus on the cross by his blood and that those who believe in him shall have eternal life with you Father will walk once again in the garden with you will glorify and worship you and will have the purpose that was always intended for our lives give us the courage Father and give us the commitment to read our Bibles to read your word in the presence of the Holy Spirit so that we can go forward and make disciples of nations We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.